Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 47, and this time, for all you new folks out there, all you dreamers, all you people wondering if you can make this a reality, we're going to show you five signs that you're ready for van life. We're also going to talk about backing up a very important thing when it comes to vans, a tale from the road involving Iceland, but also North Dakota, and we're going to review Frisbees, but there's a reason. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. I'm very happy to be with you as I'm recording one of my last episodes in College of Curiosity Studios. Yes, it's true. We have accepted an offer on our house, and we have also had an offer accepted on an apartment in a sausage murder factory. Uh, I'll save that story for later, but it's it's an interesting one. That's all I'm going to say. At any rate, you aren't here to listen to me talk about sausage murders. Maybe. You're here to listen to me talk about van life. And quite a few folks aren't really sure if they can do this. I mean, they see the pictures on Instagram. It looks like fun. But can they really do it? Now, some folks just jump right in. They don't really worry about can they do it. They just kind of do it. And that is an approach that I have a certain level of respect for. But the more cautious among you, those who like to plan a little bit, those who like to test the waters before jumping right in, let's talk about some realities here and some ways you can tell if you're ready to do this. Now, before we get into this, we have to talk about what is van life. What are we talking about? Well, as much as I like crystal clear definitions, we're not going to find one here. Van life is not something that has a prescribed list of rules and easy guidelines. No, this is one of the most individual things that I know of. For me, van life is the concept of living in a vehicle. That's it. That's my definition. It seems to fit the best, and it's the broadest definition I can come up with. So if you're going to live in a trailer that you're towing with an SUV, yes, to me, that's van life. Or if you're going to live in your Prius or just travel in your Ford Escape every weekend once in a while, yeah, that counts too. Vehicle, sleeping, put those two things together, and as far as I'm concerned, you're doing van life. But let's talk about this in the context of maybe going full-time or an extended trip, you are going to turn a vehicle into your home. That means that vehicle is going to have to provide for you all the things that your home did, whether it be a house or apartment or someone's basement or a tent. And let's start there. So I've got five things here. And the first one, and I really think this is the best indicator as to whether you're ready to jump into van life or not. How much do you like camping? Does the idea of going to camp for a weekend in the forest sound appealing to you? If you sense revulsion immediately at hearing that, that's a sign that van life might take a little bit more work for you. Because ultimately, van life is camping. There are folks who are going to disagree with that, and that's fine. There's a huge range of different ways to do van life. For some folks, van life is just RVing in a van. For other folks, van life is basically a metal tent with wheels on it. But what all those folks have in common is that they're independent. They're on their own. They're mobile. 
They're going to move. They are not going to be building a wooden deck that's going to sit there permanently. And it's important to think about the whole picture of camping. I mean, sure, everybody loves the images of hikers on top of a mountain seeing a beautiful sunset. But you aren't going to see pictures of having to get up at 4 a.m. and unzip your sleeping bag and put your feet down onto a very cold floor when it's 20 degrees out to go pee. That's camping. And that's also similar to van life. But think about it. Think about all the different aspects of camping. Think about making coffee in the morning and how it is actually a little bit of work. You may have to start a fire or you may have to light a propane stove or whatever your situation is. You may have to do more work. Think about the things you like and don't like about camping. And heck, if you've never gone camping, if you've never actually slept out in a tent, please do that first. Tents are cheap. You can get a decent tent these days for 30 bucks at Walmart. Grab a tent, grab a sleeping bag, and go to your state park and camp out for a weekend or a week or whatever, as long as you can. See how you like that, because that's going to be an indicator of how much you're going to like van life. Okay, number two. How much of a problem solver are you? I've met two basic kinds of people. There are the kinds of people who, if you present a problem to them they will start thinking of a solution or maybe a way to find information on how to solve the problem. And of course, now we have the internet and there's all kinds of ways to solve problems. But I've also met another kind of person who the very first thing they think of isn't how to solve the problem, it's who can solve the problem for them. I am not that kind of a person and I am not disparaging that kind of a person. But I suggest that for van life, if you're the kind of person who immediately goes to your contact list to try to solve a problem, van life is going to be more difficult for you because you are not going to have access to those people on the road. If you have a flat tire at 3 a.m. in Death Valley, which would be an interesting story in and of itself, you can't just call somebody up to have them come rescue you. It is your problem. You have to deal with it. You have to be resourceful. And <laughs> you are. I will give you all the encouragement in the world. Even if that sounds scary, if you have the right attitude about it, you can do it. In fact, there is no aspect of van life you can't do. You just have to have the attitude that this is your problem, you're owning it, you're going to solve it. And your determination can overcome just about everything. Okay, number three, and this is the one that comes up the most often, and I have to mention it, what about money? You've got two money problems. Well, all right, I take that back. You've got three money problems with van life. Number one, where are you getting the money to buy the van and build out the van? That's a whole gigantic conversation that could take up many episodes. Do you want to buy an expensive van with a cheap build or buy a cheap van and put an expensive build? There's all kinds of things there. We're not going to get into that in this episode, but think about those things. So that's your first money problem, getting a van. Number two, how are you going to support yourself on the road? So a lot of people are attracted to van life because they think, hey, this is a really cheap way to live. This is awesome. I'm going to save so much money. And that isn't as true as you might think. If you search on YouTube, how much does it cost to live in a van or on the web, you will see many of the YouTube van celebrities, usually couples, will break down for you how much it costs in a month. And those costs might surprise you. We're not talking about $200 a month here. 
we're talking more like $1,500 a month. That is not a showstopper. Again, you have control over this, but you have to know what that is and have a plan for it. I think one of the worst things you can do and one of the things that makes people stop van life the soonest is if they grab a few hundred bucks and head out on the road and think they're going to find money out there. Oh, I'll get a job designing web pages or I'll be an an influencer on Instagram. It doesn't work that way. The people making money on Instagram either have a talent or they've put in a lot of time and effort into promoting that page. Ask them, talk to them, and they will all tell you that it took a really long time to start making money. So you have to have a way to make money. Again, not a showstopper. There are ways to make money, and there are more ways to make money in a van now than there ever have been ever before. And in a way, we can thank COVID for this. Even though COVID has killed a whole bunch of jobs, it's also created the idea that working remotely is legitimate in the minds of those people who didn't consider it so. I've worked remotely for decades. I know it's legitimate. But for some stodgy old businessmen, the idea that you were working from your home wasn't really working. Well, now they're getting the idea that, yeah, actually it is. And if you do look at the studies on this, people who work from home actually work harder and more effectively than they do in offices in many cases. That's all good news for us, for folks who need to work remotely. You have more opportunities now than you've ever had before. But... Make sure you have grabbed onto one of those opportunities before you jump into this, or you're going to be back in the basement before very long at all. And the third money problem you have is one that a lot of people don't think about, but you need a buffer. You need to have reserves in case something bad happens. Your home is your vehicle and vice versa. If something happens to that, you've lost both. Let's say your transmission goes out. Any age of van, this could happen. That could cost you a week to a month of not having your van or a place to live. What are you going to do? What's your plan? Do you have a lot of money in reserve so you can stay in a hotel? Do you have a family member who's willing to put you up for that period of time? Whatever your solution is, make sure you have one. Because you do not want to find yourself standing outside a gas station with your broken van with no plan. That is not a good time. Number four, consider relationships. I am never going to give anybody any relationship advice. I don't understand relationships. I don't know how they work. I consider myself very, very fortunate to be in a very lovely, stable marriage. And I don't know how it happened. I couldn't give you a formula. I can't give you advice. But I do know that living in a van does create additional stress on a relationship. It can be wonderful. It can be the best thing ever. But if you're in a relationship now, you have to make sure that you and your partner or partners, no judgment here, know what you're getting into and will have a plan for how to deal with problems when they arise. Because they will, because they do in every relationship. And they're no different in a van. You just can't go sleep on the couch in the van because, hey, that's where you sleep anyway. Also consider that you are going to lose touch with people that you might see every day. For example, if you live near your parents and you're used to going over to their house for dinner once a week or whatever, you're not going to be able to do that. Now, we have the internet now, and we have FaceTime and all these things, so it's not like it used to be that if you left home, like say in the 40s, the best you could do is a letter or a phone call once in a while. 
but consider how that's going to impact you and your emotional health. There are some folks who just don't like to be distant from others. And of course, nobody's saying you actually have to be distant. You can do van life just a few miles from those folks, but you have to think about it. Finally, the last thing, and this is the one that I find most important personally, you have to have a plan. What are you doing? Because van life isn't life. Van life is a mechanism through which to have life. It is an opportunity maker. But what are you going to do with those opportunities? Why are you living in a van? Because it looks like fun? Great. That's an excellent reason. What are you going to do? Because if you think you're going to go to a national park every day and hike for the rest of your life, I am going to suggest that you're not. That's going to get old. Everything gets old. You're going to get sick of national parks. Yes, it's true. So have a big overarching plan about what your goals are and what you want to accomplish. And for some folks, that's going to be very simple. I want to take beautiful photographs everywhere I can. Okay, that's not the most solid plan in the world, but it is a plan, and that will inform you in, in your decisions going forward. Other folks have specific things, and this is what I like. I like to have a mission. Like, a very common one is to visit every, every national park in the U.S., or like I did my trip where I visited every aurora in the U.S., and I'm working on a new trip along the same lines. I like having that mission. And when you have that mission... When things go wrong, they don't seem as impactful because they are not the end game. They're just an obstacle between you and your end game. Again, this is very personal, and that's one of the things everybody loves about van life. It's very personal and very individual. You can do this. I am your advocate for you doing any kind of van life that you think is right for you. There is a whole community on the internet just dying to help you out and welcome you into this lifestyle at every different level. There are folks who want to travel with you. There are folks who want to camp with you. And there are folks who want to leave you alone and just share little tips and tidbits on social media once in a while. It's all there. You can do it, but do it in a way that is going to work for you. Okay, tech talk. Let's talk about backing up here for a minute. <laughs> All right, I know you know how to back up, but we need to talk about backing up because it seems like a lot of folks don't really use their vehicles the way they're intended. So let me tell you my background here. I, at a very early age, was a truck driver. I started driving a truck at age 18. I drove school buses and straight jobs, never over-the-road semis, but... Big enough trucks that there were no back windows, and I had to back up in very precarious places. And I went through all that and got through it all because I knew one very important thing, and that is how to use my side mirrors. If you can learn to use your side mirrors effectively, you don't even need your rear view mirror. And in a van, your rear view mirror is not really that useful, even if you have windows. It's just the shape of the vehicle. This is what I recommend. On a day when things are fairly empty or in an old abandoned mall or something like that, find a place that has lines, parking lines, and then nothing else around. And practice backing up into those lines just using your mirrors. Don't use your rearview mirror, just your side mirrors. 
if you do that, after it's, it's going to be faster than you think, you are going to get very, very comfortable backing up the vehicle, such that it isn't going to be anything you even think about anymore. It's not something to be afraid of. It's just natural. You just back up. For me, I have a hard time trusting the rear view camera because that's not how I learned. I trust the mirrors. The mirrors are real. The camera, I don't really have an intuition for how real it is. Also, the camera is a 2D image, and I know there's enhancements on there and lines and stuff, but the mirrors on the sides are always going to give you the best indication of where you are when you're backing up. That said, if you have the opportunity, absolutely get a rear view camera. Rear view cameras are excellent for two things. One, for telling if you're going to hit something backing up. Let's say there's a telephone pole behind your van and you need to get as close to it as possible. A rear view camera is perfect for that. And they're also great for parallel parking where you're trying to squeeze in between two cars. That same thing comes into play there. So I do have a rear view camera. I installed it in my van. The screen of my stereo actually shows the rear image. And I can actually press a button and see it while I'm driving, which is super handy if I have a trailer because I can angle it down and see the hitch and chains and I know everything's in good shape but when I'm backing up it's the mirrors take the time to learn how to use them and you will always always be glad you did tales from the road so back when I was doing my North Dakota trip I had seen most of what I wanted to see and I was just kind of just driving around seeing what was there and I was in the very very far northeastern corner of North Dakota. I mean, I think I saw as many Canadian flags up there as I did American flags. I was driving around and going up a hill and I saw this sign that said, Mountain, North Dakota. I was like, Mountain? That sounds like it must be an interesting town. It's named Mountain. And honestly, I didn't see any mountains there. I found out later that it was named Mountain simply because it was a high place. There is no mountain there except the town. And this is one of your typical prairie towns with like one main street and a few offshoot streets in a grid. And all the businesses are on the main street and all the houses are on the offshoot streets. And like many of these towns, it is long past its prime. This was a town that was founded in the 1880s. And whatever they had there for industry, which I'm going to assume was farming, is kind of all mechanized now and not like it used to be. But Mountain does have a claim to fame. Mountain has something I didn't know exists. It has the oldest Icelandic church in North America. Apparently, a lot of people from Iceland emigrated to the U.S., along with a lot of other Scandinavian folks. I know Iceland's not in Scandinavia. Do not write me about that. And they started a church there, and it's still there. In fact, it, it Iceland... The actual country of Iceland has donated money to this church to help them keep things going. So I thought that was interesting, and it was fun to walk around the graveyard attached to the church and reading all the stones in Icelandic. I'm a big fan of Iceland, and I just thought this was this really cool, kind of surreal moment as I'm up here in North Dakota. But I was a little tired. I had been driving hundreds of miles a day for about 10 days straight, and I was ready to kind of slow down, and I honestly I just wanted a nap. And I found a free campground in Mountain. Apparently, at some point, the community had built this campground to encourage visitors to come, and it was to support some sort of a festival they do every year. 
There was nobody there. There was like a grange hall next to it and a whole bunch of camping spaces that at one time were really nice. You could tell they used to have electricity and such. But when I was there, they were just spaces. At any rate, it was a lovely day. It was about 85 degrees out and sunny. And I thought, well, I'm just going to pull in here and take a nap. And I left the doors open because it was hot. And, uh, you know, I laid down, took a nap. And then the parade started. Now, when I say a parade, I don't mean an organized parade. I don't mean that there was something that I was missing out on. No, it seems that somebody visiting Mountain, as I was doing, was such a rare thing that the locals wanted to check it out. And they kept driving through the campground and, like, really slowly by my van. The way I was sleeping, my head was at the back of the van, and I couldn't really look out the door, but my legs were clearly visible, so they knew I was in there. And I could just see them creeping by, and I didn't talk to them, so I don't know what they were thinking, but I have two thoughts, and I prefer one over the other. The first thought is, they were just really curious. I mean, hey, there's a visitor in our town. I wonder why he's here. Let's see if we can figure out where he's from. That's my hope. The other thought is that they were a little bit xenophobic and thinking, hey, there's a stranger in our town. What are they up to? And I don't know the answer, and I'm not sure I want to know the answer. But it was interesting that just being in this town in a free campground was enough to cause a bit of a stir that would get the locals to come out and drive around and just see me in my absolutely plain, boring stealth van. Okay, product review. <laughs> Let's talk about Frisbees. And I'm not going to talk about Frisbees for their intended purpose. And yes, there's a whole history of Frisbees. Believe me, I, I actually have lectured on the history of Frisbees, how they started out as pie plates and then became toys or gaming devices. I'm talking about a Frisbee as a camping utility. You will find in many camping guides, uh, going back decades, that they say you should always bring a Frisbee with you. Why? Because they can do so many things. They can be an emergency shovel. They can be an emergency plate. They will hold a good amount of water. You can put raw meat on them to keep them out of the dirt. You can use them to fan fires to get the fire going. There's a ton of stuff you can do with a Frisbee. I have traveled with Frisbees quite a bit, and I've used them for all these things. There's a bunch of other weird things you can do with them, too. For example, if you have something stuck in a tree that you need to get down. I don't know what that might be, but let's assume you have something of yours in a tree. You can use the Frisbee to knock it down, because the Frisbee's going to come right back to you. You can also use a Frisbee as a signaling device. If you are in a very open place and you're trying to get somebody's attention, you can toss the Frisbee in the air. But the thing I've used it most for is probably as a paper plate backer. So you, you take a paper plate and put your food on it, and then you set that on the Frisbee. And the Frisbee is solid enough that it will allow you to eat from the plate without the paper collapsing. Also, believe it or not, you can use a Frisbee as a pillow. If you just put it down with the concave side towards the ground, yeah, you can actually use it as a pillow. Consider having a Frisbee in your van. You may never use it, but there may be that time when you're stuck in the snow and don't have a shovel and you need it for that, or you're trying to start a campfire in some damp wood and you need something to wave around. A Frisbee can be your friend. 
Okay, place to visit. Again, not sure what the hours are. You're going to have to do the research because of COVID. But there is an amazing museum in Chicago that I always send everybody to. No, it's not the Museum of Science and Industry. No, not the Field Museum. Not the Planetarium. And not the Aquarium. All those places are wonderful. It's not even the Art Institute, which is also wonderful. This place is special and not that many people know about it. It is called the Oriental Institute. And believe it or not, it is where Indiana Jones worked. Yeah, now let me back up here. Indiana Jones is a fictional character, right? Well, Indiana Jones was based on several real people, but one of those real people was an explorer, and he would go to the Middle East and find all these artifacts and bring them back. So his name was James Henry Breasted. From all reports, he was the Indiana Jones kind of a guy. Now, I'm sure he wasn't going out there fighting with whips and stuff like that, but he was out there digging and supervising digs and bringing stuff back. And that stuff is in this museum, and that stuff is amazing. And some of it is huge. Now, there's all kinds of concern about colonialism and the repatriation of artifacts and all of that stuff. I completely get that and agree with an awful lot of it. This museum is way back from the 1920s where people thought a lot less about that. But in current times, they are a research institution. They're really not there for you to come see their stuff. That stuff is there for the researchers. So your visiting is kind of a privilege. And they work very closely with all these countries where the artifacts came from to make sure that information is shared. And they will sometimes give stuff back if that is required. So I think they're on the up and up, and I think they have the right attitude. And they have a gift shop there that is among the best I've ever seen because they will sell you artifacts that have no value to the archaeological community but might have a lot of value to you. I mean, you can think of them as antiques. One thing I bought, I can't remember it's officially a prayer or a spell enclosed inside it, and it has a cord on it, and you're supposed to tie it around whatever part of your body is making you ill. And that was from the, the 19th century, but they were selling them in the museum at reasonable prices. They had all kinds of amazing stuff in there. So if you like Egyptology or the history of the Middle East, which ultimately becomes the history of civilization, absolutely check out the Oriental Institute. It's in Hyde Park next to the University of Chicago. It's easy to get to via all the trains, and I'll have a link in the show notes that explains all that. Resource recommendation. <laughs> this is a very strange one and very esoteric. Kind of the thing that I'm going to tell you about and you're going to just think that's stupid and then you're going to need it six months from now. But uh, you might need it. I did. It's a company called FastCap. And this company started out because one guy had an idea. He's a cabinet maker and he is drilling holes into cabinets and putting screws in them. And he wanted a very simple, fast way to cover those holes. So he invented these basically stickers that you cover the holes with, except they're stickers made out of PVC. They're a reasonably thick, but not too thick plastic that makes a very nice hard finish for holes of any size. And they have expanded and they create all kinds of little weird solutions for cabinet problems. So in my case, I have Ikea cabinets in my house as well as in the van. 
and there are hinge holes on the inside of these big doors. And I found that the hinges, I had to remove two of them from every door, basically, because they were too strong. But that left these big holes. So I looked at FastCap, and yeah, they had stickers that fit right over those holes, and they're the same color as the doors, and they look totally professional. So if you're in the finishing stages of your van, and you're looking for solutions for covering holes, or ways to join cabinetry, or drill bits, or anything cabinetry related, they have something that you probably have never thought of. So what I'm recommending is that you visit their website, but also get the catalog. I'll have a link in the show notes, but the catalog is filled with solutions for things that you may not have even known about. Q&A. A lot of people now are getting newer vans because time is marching on, and if you get a newer van that has seats in the back, a lot of times you're going to run into not only windows that you have to deal with, but airbags. And airbags are a problem. Airbags are designed to work with the original configuration of the vehicle. If you start putting cabinets and things up there, you can create a dangerous situation because those airbags go off with such force that they can rip your cabinets off the walls and throw them at you. Not only that, you could send a screw through the airbag and actually set it off while you're working on it. Ideally, you won't mess with them if you have that option. But in some cases, you have to remove the airbags in order to do your build. That causes other problems because there are sensors that are constantly checking the airbags. If those sensors don't work, in some extreme cases, your van won't start. In other cases, you get a light on the dashboard or it disables your entire airbag system in the whole van, including up front. Is there a solution? Well, yes. Now, this, I'm sure, is not recommended by the manufacturer. It's probably going to avoid any warranties, etc., etc., etc. But you can alter the wiring so that your front airbags will stay working, but your rear airbags will be removed. This also can work if you are removing your passenger seat, which has an airbag in it. Some of them have airbags on the sides, and you have this same problem. You have to do research on this. I can't give you all the information you need in a podcast, but it works like this. Your airbag system is checking for resistance. That's how it knows all your airbags are in place, connected, and working. Well, in electronics, there's a thing called a resistor. And if you find the right resistors and put them on the right wires, your airbag system will think everything's fine. And should you happen to get into an accident, your airbags that do exist are going to go off just as normal. So if you have to remove airbags, you can. It's going to take a lot of technical knowledge, a lot of research, and it's a little bit scary. And on that happy note, we come to a close for this episode 47. Thank you very much for joining us. Music, as always, is by Simon Wag. I've been having problems with the RSS feed. If you are using a podcast service and you see missing episodes, please let me know. You can send me an email at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And I would really appreciate it because I'm trying to sort out these technical issues. But until next time, remember, never get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life.